0: You're listening to Splendid Chats, recorded live at the Public Bar, Melbourne, on the nineteenth of May, 2013. Great heart listeners, it's for Splendid Chats, the podcast that goes to eleven. level. Please welcome your hosts, Splendid Chats, both of them, Ben McKenzie and John Richards.
1: Welcome to Splendid Chaps, the, the podcast all about Doctor Who. Bonjour and bienvenue, uh, chaps Magnifique, le podcast tout sur Doctor Who. John, what, what are you what are you doing? Uh, I just, it's, yeah, you, you say it in English, and I do it in French. That's, it's traditional. It's, yeah. tradition- it's traditional. It's Gallifrey, douze oh. points. No, John, John, that's traditional for Eurovision. Is this? Isn't Are not This doing is. The, I know it's the, the same
2: day. I know we accidentally scheduled a, a Splendid Chaps show on the gay holiday of the year, the Eurovision final. It's the
1: Gay World Cup, actually. I, I beg your pardon. But still, don't get your streams crossed, all right? Yeah. Wrong, <laughs> wrong podcast. Well, is—that that is, that, is, that is a little bit disappointing. How about Romania? (laughs) Hey, wait, wait, wait. John, okay? No spoilers.
2: (laughs) No spoilers today because I haven't even watched the semi-finals. I have no idea who's in the final. I'm going to have my mind blown later tonight. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to be watching the voting and having no idea what's going on. And also important, uh, no spoilers today for the final episode of the current series of Doctor Who, which we'll be watching on the big screen after the podcast. (laughs)
1: So if you've seen it in the audience, shut your mouths. Basically, no spoilers all round. Anything after 1984, I think we're we're considering as a spoiler. We're up to 1984. We are going back to the early 80s. We're looking at Peter Davison today, and we're also looking at the concept of fear in Doctor Who. But to give us more of a background to the period, let's throw the fast return switch, Petra.
0: Today we're going back to the period of 1982 to 1984. A time dominated by power ties, power ballads and power couple Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. And ending in a ruthless and oppressive regime starring John Hurt, which has always been at war with East Asia. The Falklands War begins and ends in 1982, forcing millions of Britons to learn where the Falkland Islands are, but only until conflicts in Lebanon, Iran, Iraq and Afghanistan shift the focus of world politics to the Middle East. In music, Michael Jackson released Thriller, the biggest selling album of all time, and introduces the world to the moonwalk during Motown's televised 25th anniversary concert. In 1984, Bob Geldof assembles Band-Aid to record Do They Know It's Christmas? The second best-selling and third most condescending charity single of all time. Channel 4 is launched in the UK on the 2nd of November 1982 with the first episode of Countdown. For Australian listeners, we mean the Tea Time Letters and Numbers quiz program, which we imaginatively called Letters and Numbers. Ours lasted just two years, while the English version is still going after 31. Can you imagine a television drama lasting that long? Madness! Speaking of drama, in 1983, Thames Television aired a one off program about police life titled Wooden Top. The story of Police Constable Jim Carver's first day walking the beat with WPC June Ackland in Sun Hill. They ought to have made a whole series. In 1984, Michael Grade becomes controller of BBC One. I'll explain later. Technology takes leaps and bounds as everything gets electronic. In 1982, the Commodore 64 is released and becomes the best-selling personal computer in history. It's followed two years later by the Apple Macintosh. Also in 1982, the world's first wild computer virus is discovered called Elk Cloner. It was spread between Apple II computers by floppy disks. In 1983, Ronald Reagan announced that the global positioning system, previously a military-only technology, would be made available to civilians so that they, too, could have something to swear at in their vehicles. Back in Australia, Bob Hawke becomes leader of the Labour Party in a drinking contest and shortly after, Prime Minister. The High Court blocks the building of the Franklin Dam. Dick Smith circumnavigates the globe in a helicopter. Medicare is launched. And with the adoption of Advanced Australia Fair, we become the only country in the world who understands the word GERT. The period ends in 1984 with a ruthless and oppressive regime starring John Hurt, which has always been at war with Eurasia. (laughs)
1: This is actually the period in which I become the perfect age to be watching Doctor Who. So uh, the yeah. Davison era is the first time I remember Doctor Who being new.
2: I, see, I, I'm pretty sure this is the era in which I did start watching it, even though I was far too young to understand what on earth was going on. Um, but, I, yeah, because I, I still... I have this problem where, you know, people always say that you have a special spot for your first Doctor. I can't actually remember which one I saw first because I can't remember a time when I didn't watch Doctor Who. Ooh. But I have a feeling that it was... Either Tom Baker or Peter
1: Davison But also on the ABC it could have been John Pertwee Tom Baker or Peter Davison (laughs) Depending on which week it was Now We've got some other guests to come in and talk about this period with us as well Mm. Let's find out who they are
0: Our first Splendid chap Is a comedian and actor Who began her career in a parody of Hound of the Baskervilles And has since appeared In a number of television programs Most notably as Peter Moon's daughter In Whatever Happened to That Guy She's half the sketch comedy duo Watson, and has also written and performed two solo comedy shows, Million Dollar Tegan and Touched by Fev. Our second splendid chap is a writer whose work spans crime, fantasy, horror, plays, songs, non-fiction and erotica. She's had six novels published and Walking Shadows, her vampire novel set in Melbourne, is nominated for a Kronos Award at this year's Continuum Science Fiction Convention. She's also the woman behind two iPhone apps that will guide you around the literary and peculiar sights of Melbourne. One of them shares her name with a Doctor Who companion, while the other has a cat who shares her name with me. (laughs) <laughs> They're Tegan Higginbotham and Narelle M. Harris.
3: Hello. 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 Hello.
1: Welcome aboard.
3: Thank you. Thank you, whippersnappers. <laughs> now,
4: now, we
1: normally start off by, by asking how you got into Doctor Who, although I think for, for this week we should start off with, Tegan, how did your parents get into Doctor Who? <laughs> yeah
5: really bad for my mum she she's had three kids and three cesareans so she's never been awake when we've been born um, and we are not meant to be the names that we have but dad's just always gone no nah, I'm changing it so <laughs> so I'm called Tegan because dad thought Tegan was hot um <laughs> I think I was Beckle. meant to be a Jane. My big sister was meant to be Elizabeth. That didn't happen. You've just got these nurses going, this is Tegan. Oh, that's not my daughter. No, it is. <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> so your siblings, Turlo and Chameleon, have come <laughs> out fine? <there. laughs> but it really is for Doctor Who you're named though they're, they're yeah, genuinely... that is, and
5: there's a lot of other Teagans in my age bracket that wow. are named after we've got this secret thing we'll, uh, we'll meet we'll figure out each other's age and it's like nerd dad yeah nerd dad <laughs> <laughs> I met Nissa the other day
4: wow um,
5: yeah whose dad was opting between the two and <laughs> yeah. uh, you know wasn't as won over by Teagan so yeah there's a whole lot of us just running around going ugh well,
2: <laughs> when I was growing up I actually knew and they're probably about your age uh, I knew a pair of t- twins, and they were called Tegan and Nyssa. So it's like, it's not just they thought the name was cool. They clearly went, no, we're going to have Doctor Who kids.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: But but is that, I mean, because I would have thought that would make you rebel and, you know, not become a fan of Doctor Who, but you are.
5: I am. I'm a fan. I like it. I like it a lot.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You're indoctrinated from from an early age? As it were.
5: Well, actually, I saw bits and pieces, and it was more that um, when Eccleston came out, we all, that's when I kind of really, really got into it and yeah. have been going back since then because um, I loved Eccleston. He was great. He Actually, was great. I was very
3: confused with Eccleston because I was confronted with the idea that I thought the Doctor was hot and that was so wrong. But he was. <laughs> he was really He's my favourite uncle, but Christ, look at him. He's gorgeous. That's,
2: that's going to be a running theme through and episodes then, 9, yeah, 10 and 11. I, reconciled,
3: I, I did reconcile myself to the fact that he is... Absolutely gorgeous, and I'm I'm content because I don't find any of the doctors after him sexy.
5: But you're talking about your first doctor before mine was probably Paul McGann. Wow. Yeah, How but awesome it was this, is that? it was just this confusing thing <laughs> to watch.
2: It would be confusing if you'd never seen the show before and you decided <laughs> I'm going to watch this Doctor Who movie. And it was surely they've th- made it for a new audience. <laughs>
5: <laughs> <laughs> What's it, all this stuff? And I really love him as well. So He's I great. yeah, I, that wasn't as Satisfying as Eccleston, but yeah,
2: I've got a soft spot for him as well. It'll be a good time to remind everyone that Splendid Chaps is a safe space where there's no, there's no wrong no way. way to like Doctor Who. No, that's true. Oh, that's
1: close. So Narelle. <laughs> Get your hands off, Paul. How did you you get into Doctor Who? What was your...
3: Uh, It was was kind of a two-part process. Um, When I was growing up, it was actually more something that my brothers watched that I would sometimes be in the room for and then get frightened by (laughs) when I was very young. So Pertwee would have been my first Doctor. Mm -hmm. Um, But the one I remember most clearly um, was uh, Tom Baker. And really actually went back to Doctor Who or fell in love with it properly um, when I met my husband, who you know quite well.
1: Yes, we share some parents. Yes. <laughs> it's a funny story, I'll tell it you is. later. It is.
3: So, um, yeah, when, when I met Tim actually at the Doctor Who fan club, which I'd gone to because it was the science fiction club of choice when I moved to Perth, um, and then started to get back into it and, you know, developed
1: a passion. So, we should we move on to the specific doctor we're here to talk about, which is Peter Davison. And yes. Petra, I believe you have too much information for us.
0: <laughs> Why, yes, John, I do. Peter M.G. Moffat, spelt with an E, no relation, was born on the 13th of April 1951, making him exactly 100 years younger than Robert Abe, friend to French chemist Marie Curie, and the man who introduced radiation as a treatment for cancer. And exactly one year younger than Ron Pellman, friend to French director Jean-Pierre Jeunet, and the man who introduced the Fallout video games. Spooky. Peter's father, Claude, was an electrical engineer from Guyana in South America and his mother, Sheila, was born in India, where her father served in the British Army. Peter studied at the Central School of Speech and Drama and chose the stage name Davison to avoid confusion with director Peter Moffat, spelt with an A and two Ts, no relation, who would later direct him in three Doctor Who stories. Peter's proper television debut came in 1975 with three episodes of The Tomorrow People. He played Elmer, one of three aliens who have learned about human culture via cowboy movies, while American actor Sandra Dickinson played his sister Emily, who had their mama torture him with electronic tickling boots. All three wore white Afro wigs and tried to kidnap one of The Tomorrow People as a bride for Emily. Ah, the 70s... After 18 months working in a tax office, Davison returned to TV in the 1920s romantic drama Love for Lydia in 1977 and the following year landed his breakout role, young vet Tristan Farnon in All Creatures Great and Small. The series ran for three years and by 1980 Davison was a well known and very popular actor. He still found time for a cameo as a space cow who wanted to be eaten in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The producers figuring Davison's time playing a vet made him used to being inside a cow. After All Creatures, Davison had leading roles in two successful sitcoms, Holding the Fort and Sink or Swim, both of which ran for three years, overlapping with his time as The Doctor. He hesitated to accept the offer from Doctor Who producer John Nathan-Turner, aware it would be a challenge and a big responsibility. This was driven home after he said yes via telephone and organised a press call only to find his casting announced on that evening's 9 o'clock news. The day he joined the series, he met Patrick Troughton in the car park of the BBC who congratulated him and advised him not to stay for more than three years. He followed that advice and after leaving Doctor Who, went on to star in many successful TV dramas and comedies, including A Very Peculiar Practice. Three more series of all creatures, great and small. Campion, Fiddler's Three, Ain't Misbehaven, At Home with the Braithwaites, The Last Detective, Distant Shores and Law and Order UK, among many others. He has never forgotten his time on Doctor Who, however, and returned to play the Doctor in Two Children in Need specials, to mention some time in 93... And Time Crash in 2007. And more than 60 audio adventures with Big Finish Productions. Davison's daughter, Georgia, from his second marriage, is also an actor. She auditioned for the role of Rose Tyler before finally appearing in Doctor Who as Jenny, the Doctor's daughter, alongside David Tennant, to whom she is now married. Davison has two grandchildren through Georgia, with a third on the way. Davison now lives with his current and third wife, actor and writer Elizabeth Morton, and their two sons, Lewis and Joel, in Twickenham.
2: I know we said this uh, last episode, but it really is nice now that we don't end every biography with
1: a, with death. a death. I'm yeah. really
0: <laughs> loving, not bumming everyone out. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I guess I too going back to watch the stories for this episode and just loving them. Like I watched I so much episode love that period. And so I got good. all excited because even the things that don't work um, have good ideas behind them. Yeah. Like I found myself going, I can defend Anything in the entire Peter Davison era. And then Nissa walked on screen. I thought, well, I'm sure she's very nice. <laughs> John. <laughs> but anything else. Uh, I could, Even Adric. No, I can defend Adric. I think so Adric's I great. Come home. I think Nissa's great as well, though. So Because Adric, Adric, I get the character. I get how the character's meant to work. And yeah. Turlo is basically another go at Adric. That's what he effectively is. And he works. Yeah. You know, it yeah, was just yeah. there was an actor who doesn't actually... It wasn't the best. But, oh, it, uh, <laughs> oh, but my point is that, that, that Sarah Sutton is in no way a worse actor than Matthew Waterman. She's just a different type of bad actor. <laughs> wow. wow. You know, Matthew you, Waterhouse. I got his name wrong. Poor you guy. You did. Like, that's how much <laughs> contempt you have for him. That's just oh. not cool, John. I, we read his biography. I, I listened to the audio book version. It's uh, awesome. I do recommend Matthew yeah. Waterhouse's... Well, uh, I, <laughs> because he speaks about himself in the third person yeah. it's great yeah, yeah. my favourite sort
3: of picture ever of Adric somebody's made an icon that was used on LiveJournal and it has uh, Davison's doctor in the front and Adric in the background giving him this look and this caption saying you're not my real dad yeah
1: <laughs> but this is the thing too and we are stuck with Adric at the moment but uh, we've always said every part of Doctor Who is someone's favorite part of Doctor Who. I was a ten-year-old boy watching that show, and I did go, "Well, Adric's the character for me." And you know, I think there were ten-year-old boys who kind of, went, "Oh yeah, that's you know, that's us." I have I a bad think... haircut. You know, <laughs> I,
2: I think he's like he's like Harry Potter in those sort of books uh, four, five, and six, where he's just he's a real teenager. He's anno- he's annoying, he's petulant, he gets, and it's. I think I found him really interesting rewatching it and watching the sort of arc of his character where he starts out. Being very sullen and in, like in the early episodes when he's in with Tom and, and Lala, he's just standing in the background while they argue with each other. Essentially, he's like, "Why are Mum and Dad fighting?" And then, <laughs> and then in the later episodes, he's like, "I don't like you anymore. I want to go home." And and an earth shock, it really works. Like they really bring it all home in that one story. You just wish. I wish they'd stretch this out a bit longer.
3: Oh, and I was actually watching that episode today, and there was this sense of uh, the. Ca- you're right because the character makes sense, even though the performance is. Lacking, but it was (laughs) it was it was was one of those things where, you know, have you talked about Dodo before? I, I mean, I don't know how popular he was seen at the time, but a lot of people didn't really like Adric very much, and. For that kind of character, he got a really, really good send-off, really well-written script. And, you know, at least he didn't suffer the effect of, shh, he's sleeping somewhere,
5: let's all sneak away. <laughs>
3: <laughs> run, run, Tegan, <Deacon>, run. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
3: so, you know, uh, in terms of the writing, the, you know, whatever the performance was like, the writing for the character, and it, you know, it did make sense as a, a character.
1: So moving back to the bigger picture, what, what are your feelings of, of the Davison era? What, what I did don't you like take them. I it?
5: think he was nice. And i just... <laughs> <laughs> this is This is the sort of comments that you're going to get from me. He seemed nice um, <laughs> <That's accurate. laughs> He seemed nice. I, I like the way I, I was watching um again recently, just going back over Teague and stuff. I even liked the goodbye that those two had because I think that I really like the tenant doctor, but sometimes I think that the lovey doveyness, as, as with a lot of people that I speak to, kind of got to me sometimes, but it was just this goodbye where he just went back to being like no, no, no I'm the doctor and and that's goodbye. And I don't know, I think he was very nice, but he wasn't a dick, and there we go. <laughs> okay, but, well, I actually, he was pretty. <laughs> <laughs> he likes animals. That's great. Um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I do have that thing about Tegan. I think Tegan's farewell is fantastic, and I, I think it's a shame that the show feels now that it can't just have a character say, you know what, that's enough. It's
5: actually a really good goodbye. Um, and, you know, she does run back in, which is... You know, it's 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 sad, but I think it is a good goodbye. She's like it's not fun anymore. And that's I thought yeah. that was really it was a great way to leave. And you don't see that sort of goodbye anymore with one of the companions just going, "Look, I've actually had enough," you know. Mm. It's I think it's I thought it was really good. I thought all mm. the
2: companions actually during Davidson's era, they all get a good send-off. Like, I mean, obviously Adric's one is is huge and we'll talk more specifically about that, but um even Nyssa, like while it's it, it, Often it, it's talked about as if it feels a bit contrived, but the way they sell it when she leaves, it makes perfect sense. She's like, no, 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 like my specialty is medicine. Mm. These people are in horrible need. I see a real opportunity to do something good and stick around and do it and have a place. I'm not just going to wander. Like my whole world's been destroyed and here I can make a difference and it really, it really feels right and, and good. She and the way the, the doctor yeah. reacts really sells it as well.
3: Oh, I mean, I've always liked the idea that the Doctor trains people to go away and be their own hero. Yeah. So, you know, at its best, I think. So. I think
5: it also treats the whole thing with a lot more respect, that whole, this is going to go somewhere where she can actually do something instead of it all just being that, woo, we're just going to fuck around and have fun. And, you know, I actually think that's quite a lovely way of doing it.
2: Yeah. It, w- it would have been probably a little, had a little more gravitas if she wasn't wearing a nighty at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which was an unfortunate decision for that show. But otherwise than that, yeah, I totally agree. The
1: whole period, though, does have a really interesting um, appreciation for the characters. Like, it's done quite low-key, but the show obviously has a lot of respect for these people, and so mm. they don't just go, hey, I'm getting married to that guy. You know, yeah. they, they actually... <laughs> yeah. they, they tend to leave for Lila a reason. Yeah, syndrome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, they leave for a reason. It's connected to who they are. It's connected to the the characters. The other thing I was noticing when watching it, and this is maybe more as a contrast to now, is that the... The show now feels very much it's about the Doctor, it's about the companion. Mm. Back then, it was often about the people whose world he was landing in. You know, so The Awakening is just as much about the people who live in that village. And the Doctor is then a catalyst for change. And I found that really interesting that the show had a a quite... um, a respect for the other character's story. There
5: is a slight, not a, there is just the way that the Doctor does fly around. It does all seem just so. Let's just go check stuff out. There is a little bit of a lack of respect for the people in those worlds, and I think you know they're just seeing it as a bit more of a game. Whereas, yeah, when you actually do consider that they're going to be intruding on a on a on a thing that's already established. That's, that's not there as much now. It is more of just a bit of a game and flying around and all that sort of stuff.
1: I feel now that that speech that toes up in human nature where um, Joan says, so hang on, if you hadn't come here, none of this would ever have happened. No one yeah. would have died. And it does feel a bit like the show is now in a way like comic books where the supervillains only exist because of the existence of the superhero. Yeah. Whereas watching this period, he is much more just a, a, almost a random not a bystander, but they get caught up in these stories, not through any particular wish to be in them.
2: Yeah, Caves of Androzani is the the sort of archetypal example of that, where they show up and the Doctor's like, oh, let's check it out. And there was a civil war going on. Like, They didn't make the civil war any better or any worse. They got caught up in the middle of it and accidentally got themselves poisoned. And it's what makes that sort of final moments of Davison's Doctor, where he's sacrificing himself for this accidental thing that's happened that he feels responsible for just because he you know he brought Perry there it's really like it really hits you it's like these guys are just trying to have a good time
1: and it's it's not going well Casey Andrews also spirals out from this incident in the first episode where they mm. get the spectrox on them which yeah. is poisoning which they don't know for like how. it's really fascinating it's, it's almost played as a laugh when it yeah. first happens and everything kind of unravels from that point, which I thought was an amazing way of presenting that. And then by the end of the show, the planet is tearing itself apart. Like, everything is falling apart by the yeah. end of the episode. It's, it's so well done. Yeah. It's a, it's a reason why. I mean, you know, it's one of those things
2: that it always comes up whenever they do, you know, polls for the best story ever. It's always right up there near the top, if not number one um, anymore. But it used to be all the time before the new series came back. and. And it's just, yeah, it's this amazing piece of drama. And it really sells also, like you we were saying, nowadays they've got a very different take on the relationship between Doctor and Companion. Mm-hmm. But back then, it was so clearly... It's like Elizabeth Sladen says in her interview on More Than 30 Years in the TARDIS. She, she talks about how, you know, the Doctor was my best friend. I would have done anything for him. And in Caves of the Androzani, you see, you see the reverse of that, where the Doctor's like, no, no. Like, Perry's my friend. She trusted me to go on an adventure. And if you watch, like, Planet of Fire, she actually signs up to just go away for three months because that's how much leaves she's got left. <laughs> and now she's on an alien planet. She's been poisoned and she's going to die. And the Doctor's like, there's no way I'm letting that happen. Like, this is supposed to be fun. I'm supposed to have changed my ways. After Tegan's left, I'm going to really try and sort this out. And it's just... It's, yeah, it's really beautiful.
1: One thing I would ask, though, because you went nice when you were describing him, and he has been accused in, in some ways as being bland. Do you think there's any basis?
5: Um I don't know. I wouldn't have called him bland. I don't know. He was he was a younger guy and I think No, I wouldn't I wouldn't say bland. I don't know. I just think that he was young and he was nice. He always
3: <laughs> struck me. Um in the first couple of years, as being less sure of himself, more timid. And, of course, that echoes a little bit, that Troughton could be like that sometimes. Um, I actually thought it was such a shame that he left after three years because I thought he'd really hit his straps because he was an old, old man in this young body. And that's something they're doing again now. But I really... Because he had his little um, Geppetto glasses. And I loved it when he slipped on the Geppettos and went all old man on us in that young... Timbrook yeah. Taylor body.
4: Yeah. <laughs> so I was yeah. watching it today.
3: You've got Timbrook Taylor hair. <laughs> That's not attractive. <laughs> so he, he was throwing back to the first Doctor. and then, yeah, So he, was like, he started as Troughton and then turned back uh, into the first Doctor. I, I liked that. And then he left before he got a chance to really run with that idea.
1: One of the things I thought was interesting watching him again, though, was that he really sells danger. Like, there's a lot of stuff that, uh, especially towards the end of the Tom Baker era, he'd become indestructible. I think yeah. to the viewers. And Davison's like, no, this could kill us. Like, he's, there really is just this terror that he manages to put forward. Um, the cliffhanger, the episode three of Caves of Androsani, which I think oh, is one of the yeah. best ones ever, yeah. which is where he's basically going to crash a spaceship to, like, yeah. you know, he's not going to be stopped. And it could be horrendously melodramatic, but he totally sells it. Yeah.
2: Yeah, he does. And he's got, I, I, I agree with that. I, also, it's interesting you're talking about he's bringing back. Patrick Trouton, because he, he said explicitly that what he did, because he remembered watching Doctor Who as a kid and he mostly remembered William Hartnell and, and uh, Patrick Troughton because they were the doctors on TV when he was young. And he uh, went back and re-watched the show and purposefully put a bit in of all the previous doctors except Tom Baker because he's like, well, I want to be different to Tom Baker. Mm-hmm. And it was mostly Patrick Troughton. But you do see those cranky moments come out. But there's lots of little things that he does that I love. Like one of the things that um, whenever he finds out what's going wrong the peter davison doctor always just has this little moment where he sort of stares off into the distance and just goes oh no and he's like but i can't tell anyone in case i'm wrong i'll just wait a little bit oh it's true <laughs> and then and then he and then he'll turn to everyone and goes oh. and he also he gets exasperated like he's got so much energy he struggles to. It feels like sometimes, like he's holding all this stuff in, and then, and then when the bubble bursts and he gets angry, like when the cyber leader provokes him, and he's just like, "Don't you get it? Why you're just crappy cybermen?" Like, and he, he has a go at them. It's like, yeah, that come. You believe that it came from somewhere. It's not just the script says "be shouty," which um, <laughs> certain other doctors maybe do, uh, but not. <laughs> But not Peter Davison and he really sells that. Yeah,
3: as an actor he had a lot of texture and depth so he could bring it back and be very quiet and be very convincing. He didn't need to tap into the melodrama. I think Tom Baker often just relied on the melodrama and he did it really well and... He f- his doctor always felt like an alien. And maybe that's one of the things that, that um, Davison's doctor feels actually more relatable as human and you know, because his performance is more subtle. Um, so you've got to be paying more attention and there's, there's more vulnerability. and you know, He is sort of nice, but I think that niceness as a concept comes from the fact that he's vulnerable and a little bit timid and very aware of his responsibility for all the people under his care and how he's screwing that up quite magnificently at times. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. I think the whole production's an interesting period... Because I get the thing, they are reacting against what the show was before. It's like they're all trying to do that. They're all trying to go, well, how do we do that not like that? Yeah. And so you end up with things like, um, not only is the Doctor different, I think Tegan, who is one of my all-time favourite companions. It's just so great. (laughs) To have a companion who calls the Doctor on his bullshit, like that's just awesome, you know, and and even down to you know sort of little things like the types of stories they're telling it's a period in which there's a lot of villains who aren't really villains which is a very moffat kind of thing now as well uh, boredom propels the villains in at least two stories, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, it's you know, so it's, great. The look of it is completely different. I was just, I was just fascinated to watch it and see how the show changed. Even Earthshock, and weirdly enough, on the DVD, everyone's going, "Oh, they hired Beryl Reed as a space captain. What a terrible idea! She's brilliant,
2: genius idea. She's genius. Is what it is. Okay. Yeah, she's like, we're
1: getting there on time. Where's my tea?
2: You're like, yes, yeah, <laughs> right,
1: exactly. <laughs> Damn I, right, I'd I obey her orders. And Jeez. they're all like, going, "Oh no, a, a spaceship captain should have been this kind of person. No, that's the point. That's why you hire Beryl Reed. Yeah." Because she's not that kind of person. The whole series is fascinatingly doing those games. And reading about the decisions,
2: like why they made those decisions, like John Nathan Turner writes that, um, you know, by the end of the Tom Baker era, you had Lala Ward and K-9 around. So you had, like, an extremely capable time lady and a robot dog mobile supercomputer. And he's like, why are they ever in peril? (laughs) Why don't they just look at each other and go, I think we've got a B-19. You know what to do, right? (laughs) That was what his quote was. He said, we had to change it. We had to go back to having companions who had like, the audience viewpoint and could ask the questions and, and give them an in. And then the idea that Teagan would be like a sort of older sister to the two younger companions, which is... A, I think sometimes this era gets unfairly maligned as neighbours with roundels, they sometimes call it, <laughs> which I think is unfair because the, that human drama, I think it's great because the focus is not on that drama, but it adds so much to have just a little bit of it in there makes it so much more real and it makes the stakes feel real and you really care yeah. about what's happening and I think that's what this era of Doctor Who does so well
3: I, I wish though that they hadn't done the whole these are the uniforms for the dolls kind of that thing. was weird and wasn't that because that, that that makes what should be realistic human drama in this science fiction setting and makes it artificial because think well here we are and we've got Tegan in a that uniform must have smelled so rank it's, by well, the yeah, time she left. Yeah. I, yeah. I
1: agree that is weird that you wouldn't get a uniform or your schoolboy uniform unless that's your
3: thing. But,
1: um, <laughs> well but, he didn't, uh, <laughs> clearly Turlo didn't get out of it even though he was like in his late 20s. So yeah. I mean, yeah. It
3: reminds me of some film I saw once like, Would they make you dress like that? No, they let me dress like <laughs> that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but, but again the idea is really interesting just that John Nathan Turner wanted to have uh, he wanted to sort of make them archetypes. And that. I, mean, I, I, th- I think it's uh, the wrong idea but I think it's an interesting idea. He deliberately wanted you to know this is this character and that's what they look like and it's an interesting yeah it's a concept yeah, a good nice costume
5: one.
3: designer could have done that with
5: having slightly
3: different costumes
1: yeah, anyway. yeah, yeah
5: but the whole way through Tegan was just trying to get back for her first day of work <laughs> So, you yeah, know, maybe she was just expecting any I want australian her. <laughs> yeah. She was. It's the one thing I'm just like, really? All these this amazing things. This is the longest smoker in history. <laughs> she, was, she wanted to get back for her first day of work. So she was just, she was prepared. She was ready to go. Yeah. And
4: uh, then there's
2: that one episode where, where they go, oh, I think we're back on Earth. And Tegan's like, no, I'm, I'm keen to stay. I like it here now. Why are we back on Earth? They go, oh, it's 1925. She's like, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm going to change my clothes. Let's get drunk. <laughs> <It's> yeah. <laughs> Actually, the other thing I wanted to mention is uh, I talked last time about I always like to look at these things and try and work out what it's telling us of the time they were made in. And I mentioned that for Tom Baker, it didn't seem to be telling us much. And I got someone corrected me saying that, in fact, towards the end of the Tom Baker era, there's a lot of stories about money. Start showing up, it starts showing as, a, as an interesting theme. Yeah. And at first, with this, I thought it was almost doing the, the very Thatcherite thing of just let's make it shiny and ignore everything. Uh, and then I realized there's an awful lot going on in this period involving power and class, but never directly commenting on it apart from maybe enlightenment. Yeah. Like, it's fascinating. It kind of puts a lot of into power play and, and greed as well. And greed. Like, there's a lot of characters
2: who are corrupted through through greed or through, like, I mean, in Earthshock, the second in command is, is basically like, Yeah, I'm working with the sidemen for money. Like, he's being paid. And, of course, in Caves of Androzani, the main villains are all in it for the money except mm-hmm. Shara's Jack, who's just mental yeah. um, wants revenge. Um, I, I, but there's that whole, I mean, the Androzani, again, you've got. A who's just all about the money, and he represents like everything that's wrong with ultra capitalism. Mm. Like he's going to close minds because they're making too much stuff. You're like What? Yeah. Uh, he even has the um, slicked back hair and a yeah. ponytail, which is yeah, so very good. 80s. Yeah. I, I watched it with my uh, partner, and she hadn't. She's never watched much Doctor Who, and her main thing about Kay's
1: design, she just said,
2: "It's so 80s. <laughs> <laughs> it looks really 80s." And I'm like, "Well." It was made
1: in the 80s. Um, yeah. yeah. It is very 80s, though, I guess, even even intrinsically. Actually, the other thing I noticed too was technology. This is a time where technology is starting coming into the home. And the interesting thing is, you start seeing companions doing an awful lot of tinkering with the TARDIS, yes. which we'd never seen before. Now, the TARDIS has become a thing you can understand and plug things into. Yeah, yeah. Nyssa
2: particularly, who is, you know, supposed to be an, an alien from a much more advanced civilization than Earth and knows lots about science, she does all kinds of stuff with the TARDIS to the point where in Earthshock she basically admits that I can more or less fly this thing, but I don't quite know what I'm doing. But but she does everything else. Like, she can detect electromagnetic fields, she can, so, you know, operate the scanner, you can do everything except properly fly it. But then and even the, the doctor, doctor can't, can't do that. <laughs> yeah. And this is one of those eras where... Um, I think this is like where they start to have the thing where it's like, well, maybe he can fly it and maybe he can't. And it's just sort of on a story-by-story basis whether or not they've gone somewhere on purpose or not.
1: The About Time books claim that it's in this period in which the last ever uncontrolled flight happens in the classic series. That, in fact, every episode after this he gets where he's going. Yeah, right. You don't really notice, but he just yeah. That's true. I guess that's true for for Baker and uh, McCoy, isn't it?
2: Yeah.
3: It hasn't previously been one of my favourite eras, but the more we talk about it, I go. Oh, you know, I think I quite like it in retrospect. I must go watch some more.
1: The giveaways first, shall we? Because giveaways means prizes. This episode, we are giving away Doctor Who, the visitation special edition. Uh, Now, we have one of these for you people here in the audience. We have one of these as a virtual door prize for you, the listening audience. All you have to do is go to the website, splendorchaps.com, find the... Post for this episode, leave a comment, good, bad, indifferent, and you'll go into the virtual door prize. Last show we were giving away Doctor Who The Legacy Collection. Which basically means Sharda and the best Doctor Who documentary ever made. More than 30 years in the TARDIS. Thank you, BBC on DVD.
5: The winner is Jess Cooper.
1: Oh, Jess Cooper. Jess Cooper, are Are you you here? here?
5: Damn, now we have to pay for post-it. Oh, no, it's, we're recording Redrawed. it. We drew oh, no. <laughs> oh,
1: no. <laughs> yeah, so, Jess Cooper, well done. You will be getting that in Hooray. the mail. Hey.
2: I have a feeling like we shouldn't contact
1: her. We should just
2: uh, say, listen to it and find it, because how exciting would that be?
1: Actually, what? the last person did, did, that did happen to, oh, he was listening, apparently, and got the whole, you've won the prize. Hey. And he was
0: already commenting on other people's posts, and then he went... <laughs>
1: <Brilliant. laughs> so Personalized podcasting. Now there were some questions left by our wonderful audience. Let us start. And you've got one from an online person as well. I do. Don't forget that one. But why don't we start with you, Benjamin? Oh, sure. The... I've got I've got a long one.
2: And actually, they've it's got both a postscript and a post to post script. So, <laughs> but uh, let's go. Um, the Fifth Doctor's final line, "Adric," is often mocked as being undramatic. But could it be interpreted, or Retcons, retcons.
1: Thank you. As being something a little more telling. Oh. Hmm. What I are they trying to say, John? Well, weirdly enough, I I, I think it is. I, I don't know. I, I unless I'm misreading them. I think the point is meant to be that it is.
6: It, it is, is his guilt. It
1: is a dramatic. Yeah. Gu- I think it's a dramatic. Moment. I always thought so.
6: What else are they trying to suggest? Yeah, all
1: the spinning heads are going around. And rather him going, wow, look at all the spinning heads. He goes, hey, you're the one I killed. Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I feel really bad. Yeah, because it's playing on his mind since Tegan left. And he's like, oh, because he says, oh, oh, it seems I must mend my ways. Like I left the Time Lords because I didn't like the way they lived. And now I'm like surrounding people with death and destruction. And and it comes back, the theme, there was a great online essay that I found. um, I forget where it is, but if I can find it, I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, about Peter Davison's time on the show, and it's called Violence and Vulnerability. And I think that really kind of sums it up. And I think he really would feel horrible guilt. Oh, yeah, like, his or my companions, come back to speak to me. And it's like, oh, it's not really happening, it can't be, because the one that I'm responsible
1: for the death of is speaking to me. And, of course, he would be like, Patrick, shit. Actually, while we're on this, I probably should go to the question which came in from the website. Nathan actually her. left us a question in advance. Uh, about Earthshock, saying, I remember as a kid watching this when it originally aired on the ABC and being utterly shocked and horrified. I'd never witnessed a companion death, although since discovered there had been others, and couldn't believe it. The final moments of Adric's smashed badge in the credits was one of the defining moments for me about Davison's era, though I guess I've kind of identified with Adric in a way as he was young and a bit of a nerd, etc. Uh, I'm wondering how the death of Adric affected the panel when they first saw it, either originally or later, which I think is the same point. And I remember being shocked. I I remember genuinely it was a a shock. It's also weird that back then we really didn't know what was going to happen on television until it aired, which (laughs) seems... (laughs) Oh, The Cybermen was a surprise, which... Although
2: you say that, but Doctor Who is one of the few shows where you might know what had happened uh, before you eventually got to see it because there were so many books about it. Even though you couldn't go on the internet in those days and and read an episode synopsis, I had, by the time I actually watched Earthshot... I think I probably had four or five different books that told me exactly what happened in it, mm-hmm. um, including the novelisation, obviously. So I, I knew, but I think I still... I didn't know about the silent credits, I don't think, the first time I saw it, and I found that really affecting.
3: It was interesting watching it again because, you know, I, I didn't like Waterhouse as a performer um, and I didn't really identify with Andrick as a character and I feel almost slightly resentful of the fact that you made me care about... <laughs> About someone who for whom I cared very little, but and and I'm so very impressed with the writing. Um, actually, even watching it, I was thinking Waterhouse wasn't as bad as I remembered. He wasn't great, but he had. A, there was a few moments. I think the director really got the most out of everybody for that story. Um, but there was this, yeah, the, this sense of, and and it's, sometimes I can feel this as a writer too, watching all kinds of shows. But sometimes the writing will transcend the people who are saying those words you don't always get great actors you don't always get time to film something really well and get the shot that you want but here was a story and here was a death that was meaningful and that you you have all these moments and it's so drawn out you keep almost being saved you get almost having it work out and then it keeps like you know they're really kind of pushing your buttons but really really well on it so i i in terms of Missing Adric, I, I never have, but yeah. I thought it was beautiful writing and a really, really well done ending. So certainly as a writer, I have nothing but admiration for how that story went and how it ended. I thought it was really, really, really well well done. in the silent credits, which I've seen before in other shows, uh, even before then, I remember a silent credits episode of The Sullivans. Um, wow. But I, I've always liked that as a technique for respect for a, 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 a profound death that had re, sort
1: of meaning to it. Yeah. So, yeah. John Nathan-Turner was apparently copying Coronation Street, who had also... No, no, they had done the same thing with silent credits for death. Yeah. I thought, good.
5: (laughs) (laughs) No, I did. (laughs) I did, but in a different way. (laughs) In a different way. I thought, because I've watched these ones from a very different position, I've gone back and watched bits and pieces, so I never had that, uh, you know, now hearing how much... There's not a lot of love for Adric. I didn't have that love for Adric ever. But I think it was important that there was a death, and there, it was sad. It's a very sad episode, and silent credits get to me. <laughs> oh, my God, they're not doing music. Um, it, it is a sad episode, and it's a good episode, and I think it was good that he died. You know, it was important that he died. So I actually did think good when I saw it because I, I understood the bigger picture and what that meant, and it was important that a character died.
2: I, I just, The only other thing I'll say about the death of Adric is that I, I liked Adric, but I could never forgive him for the fact that if he had... Succeeded, we would still have dinosaurs today.
1: <laughs> oh, Good point. What were your postscripts, very quickly? Because we're going oh, to
2: uh, Postscript uh, regarding Tegan's departure and the complaint that nobody just decides to leave. I give you Martha. Yeah, yeah, she decides uh, to leave But she decides to leave Because she's in an unrequited love affair Which I think punctures that a bit Because I, I, I was really disappointed Because I liked Martha the first three episodes And then when it became a Oh, she wishes she was in love with the doctor But they're doing this No, no, no His love affair with Rose Is going to be the big thing forever That's what it became about And she didn't decide to leave Because she'd had enough She decided to leave Because she was in a bad relationship mm-hmm. That's what it felt like to me anyway Actually,
3: that's quite a strong thing to do though Oh, it is,
2: yeah And I think that, But I think that's a different thing and, yeah. and I, I just would have liked to have seen I, him. I've
3: had this discussion with with Tim before, this idea that you're know, getting very annoyed with everybody going into the TARDIS and falling in love with the Doctor. But I thought, but man, tell me any man or woman who wouldn't be taken away on that kind of adventure and then go off and have... Like, everyone would have a huge crush on that man. You know, whether or not it's going to turn to a love affair. But I would crush on him so hard for taking me away and showing me adventures. I mean, I've crushed in him now and he, <laughs> I've not actually been in the TARDIS. You know, so, so in that sense... I don't think it's unrealistic that, that somebody travelling with a doctor would have mm. this just mm-hmm. massive time travel boner for him. Uh, it's just... <laughs> <laughs> time travel Fair boner. Fair enough.
2: Fair <laughs> enough. And, I, and uh, your PPS? <laughs> uh, we did have a PPS. Uh, I know a guy who was named after Adric.
1: True.
0: Oh.
1: True and tragic, I oh. would suggest. Well,
0: it's actually quite tragic. a nice name.
1: But I think Petra, you've got, you've got a card there, Petra. What's yours?
0: On that note, this comment is props to Tegan. I can sympathise as I'm Callie. Named after a psychic warrior princess from Blake Seven, yeah. hey. who happened to look a lot like my mum. For non geeks, I say it's the Irish spelling.
3: My card says Do you think we will see a new batch of children named Stormageddon? <laughs> <laughs> I think possibly, yes. Though that, that name, Stormageddon, even at the time that the, the doctor was saying, oh, the baby's name isn't what you think it is, it's Stormageddon, is that, you know, we've had these massive occasional hailstorms in Melbourne which are generally referred to things as, like, apocalypse or the snowpocalypse that was happening in the US. And I just think Stormageddon, he's just understanding the whole climate change thing and he's just owning that
5: name. So, <laughs> it's, you know, so who knows, we might have a lot of climate change names coming in in future. So my question is... There are over 200 aboriginal languages in Australia. Good- How all oh, right. <laughs> How come Teagan is fluent in Orante? the central australian clan language she's from brisbane (laughs) now my answer was going to be fucking cause all right but (laughs) you've actually got a really good explanation for this that you've actually thought through and it's it's really good oh thank you
3: yeah i I was explaining i you know 30 years ago i started my writing career as a writer of fan fiction mostly blake seven uh so i'm really good at watching a show going i can explain that (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Give me a minute. And my, my explanation is that, uh, as we all know, the, the TARDIS uh, is uh, psychic and is basically the Babelfish. For everyone, everyone who travels in the TARDIS will understand whatever language and be able to read whatever language is being spoken. My thought is that um, Tegan probably somewhere in outer Brisbane, may have spent some time or grew up partly on a property with Aboriginal stockmen. She knows whatever the uh, some of whatever that local dialect is. When she's speaking to the 10,000-year-old Aboriginal from Central Australia, the TARDIS connection is translating for her, but she doesn't know that. So she's hearing the language that she knows. <laughs> Don't See, you love yeah, That's awesome,
5: all right. That and,
3: makes but then she sense. she thinks, with everybody else around her, I'm not going to be able to explain to them about the dialect, so I'll just say, "Oh, I speak Aboriginal," but because you're not from Australia, you won't get that.
1: But, but that almost sends itself so that everyone else can understand him too, and they're just humouring her,
3: going. <laughs>
2: Well, I didn't say it was a perfect. I need another minute. No, no, I think. But I, I think the person asking the question has missed the the two real points. One, one is um, how does someone who is ten thousand years old say anything that anyone else can understand? Uh, But also, fire, tree, (laughs) berry, good. uh, How, how is it possible that a flight attendant from nineteen eighty four, a white flight attendant from nineteen eighty four Australia, even cares to speak Aboriginal? That's not very accurate, unfortunately. I wish it was. (laughs) Did they really? They used a real Aboriginal language, didn't they? I believe so, um, yeah. Which is uh, like uh, quite impressive that they even went to that much effort, to be honest. So that's good. But then, yes, you're quite correct. There are fair, so many different languages. Most of
1: the aboriginals in that story were played by West Indians. <laughs> Not so good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At least Final they weren't question. played
3: by anybody in blackface and we
2: could be grateful for
3: small <laughs> yeah, words. That is
1: g- fair point, well
2: made. What would you like to talk about next, Ben? Well, we'd, we'd like to talk about the theme of fear in Doctor Who because it is a show that's famous for scaring people. Like, supposedly, people watch it from behind the couch and I I, I do just want to start by asking everybody on the stage whether you ever did watch Doctor Who from behind the couch because I never did I was if I was frightened of anything it was missing a single second of that
1: show so I I had my eyes glued to the the screen as long as it was on I used to occasionally bring a pillow and put it in front of my face so I couldn't see the television (laughs) but I was an odd child What oh my god, that's so
3: adorable! <laughs> <laughs> what, did you did you hide behind the couch? No, well, the, the no, I was even more cowardly than that uh, because before I, I rediscovered Doctor Who um, when I was about twenty, um, I would watch it kind of in passing while my brothers were watching. So I would sometimes just watch from the doorway and then bolt. <laughs> 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 oh, no, no, so yeah, I'm sure my brothers thought it was hilarious.
5: I know that my mum was terrified of it. I've I've no. I happen, <laughs> I happen to really love scary things, though, so I go out of my way to find the scariest things. So Doctor Who's not going to come close to that. But um, the episode, it's the, the Empty Child. Yeah. That one, I think, I, I, uh, it was creepy. Like, I don't think it would ever scared me, but that was definitely like, oh, kids. I, I have scared <laughs> me. <laughs> <laughs> it's creepy. <laughs> wow. I,
3: I rather entertainingly frightened myself with Doctor Who as an adult. Um, I was on a cemetery tour in Tuong, which is a lovely cemetery. It was a nighttime yeah. tour, but it's all open air and up on a hill. It was probably the least frightening and intimidating cemetery I've ever been in, and, and it was very nice. But we got to the hilltop, and I decided to wind Tim up, so I leaned over to him at one point. The top of the hill at the Tuong Cemetery's got a lot of angel statues, yeah. um, so I just leaned over and whispered in his ear, "Whatever you do, don't blink." <laughs> <laughs> and then I turn around there's an angel statue <laughs> yeah, I just, <laughs> so, so i was all wound up for the rest of the tour <laughs> i was like oh fuck.
5: it's a, whenever my mum tries to go to the bathroom and it's night time it's always just check those corners <laughs> she's gone um but no the angels they're awesome i'm not scared of things but i think as a scary thing they are awesome and i love them i, I think they're really really great
1: yeah the episode blink is genuinely it's scary r- it's, it's really
3: it's, it's, great yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a uh, Another thing I read recently, which is somebody, again, on Tumblr, I love those crazy Tumblr people, said if you really, really, really want to frighten the Doctor Who fan, just wait till they're fast asleep. Get a black texter <laughs> and just mark off groups of five,
2: Put the texter in their hand and then wait. <laughs> Petra, what about you? Did, you? did you ever hide behind the sofa watching Doctor
0: Who? I generally sat on the sofa myself. Um, no, that's, that's
2: a sensible way to do it. I agree. That's what they're for.
0: Yeah. Look, I think along with the panel, um, Blink was definitely the episode where it wasn't sort of hiding, but it was definitely that.
2: You were holding someone's <laughs> hand at the time. Maybe. When I rewatched it for this season, I watched it with my partner who'd never seen it, and yeah, she was like. Oh! <laughs> and she's quite calm right up until the first bit where it kind of zooms in on someone's face, they blink and it turns around and you see it closer up. And, and it's you're like, really oh, like, yeah, 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 that
5: horribly aggressive, scary face. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I actually played that game with a child once. Uh, <laughs> if <laughs> if, if oh Tansy's God. out there, you'll
3: remember this. But um, <laughs> her little girl was, uh, we were playing in the park, and I'm always quite confused about what to do with children. But I know that she's a Doctor Who fan, so we decided to play Blink. And the idea was that you <laughs> cover your eyes <laughs> and then. Uh, just you know, uncover your eyes and see. It's like playing peekaboo, but with a fear aspect. <laughs> <laughs> And it was the question is like, who could get closest to who and make them squeal? And I found that strangely frightening. Yeah. Well, yeah. It might just be that I don't know what to do with children much. <laughs> so close. Well but yeah, it was She enjoyed Rayleigh really thought it was great. She I'm, had
5: heaps of fun. You know,
1: one of the things this brings up though is interesting that Doctor Who started off with the idea of taking the mundane and making it magical. So the police box, for example, when it started, was a, an object kids knew. It was You know, scattered around towns, children were meant to recognise it. And the idea is you take these things and make them magical. And the interesting thing with the angels is it's also the thing Doctor Who takes the everyday and makes it terrifying. Mm. And so the angels is a great idea of going. Let's take a thing kids see all the time. Um, You also have store dummies, shop dummies,
3: shop dummies anymore. Yeah. yeah.
1: (laughs) Um, You take maggots and make them huge and yeah, scary. A crack in a child's wall. This this thing where Doctor Who I think works at its best when it takes everyday objects and just puts dread into the Yeah,
0: Mary Whitehouse used to get so upset about that. The interesting thing about Blink was, um, and it was one of the first episodes I watched coming back into it in the new series, and that started me, and then I went back and watched Eccleston. Um, the Doctor is barely in it. And is that part of the the That's fear? The, the fact that you're, you know, you feel safe when you're with the Doctor and he's taking you on this adventure. Oh,
1: so there's no safety character. No. You know that everyone could die. There's yeah. no... He's not there to stars.
2: save the day. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah.
1: a good point. It's interesting too that blink uh, the
2: the Weeping Angels are cited always as one of the scariest monsters in Doctor Who. But when you think about it, they don't ever kill anyone, and. Uh, Even when or- they
5: get you, all they do is take you back in time. They don't really.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you know, that's unfortunate. Oh, but except for the people, like, except for the episodes when they don't do that. Yeah, except do basically the other uh, thing. But I think we Blink, can all
2: agree there. Are, the law of diminishing returns certainly <laughs> applies to the Weeping Angels. Um, although I think their last appearance was better than their second one. But anyway, it is a great name, Weeping Angel. Though it's very evocative. um and uh, But it, it, and all, but like I say, it's like, it's, it's like a non-threatening threat. Like they're very frightening and the, the major fear in it comes from those shock moments where you see them suddenly closer to you and they've got the big fangs and the claws but they don't bite you or tear you to pieces. They touch you and you go back in time and go, this is weird. And then you go, oh, but I've seen life on Mars. I know what to do. <laughs> uh-huh. Just blend in and have a good time. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, everyone you meet me who it's though, happened to has a good life.
3: But that's a particularly white Anglo male... <laughs> Attitude as well, a woman, true. I'd be incredibly distressed to be thrown back a hundred years in time. I'm sure if you're a person of in an Anglo country of any ethnicity, you might find that a lot more disturbing. Quite apart from the fact that you're being torn away from your family and your support groups, and you don't know the social rules, and so you know. Hey there, you with your attitude. No, I, uh, yeah, Narelle, you are, yeah, you are
2: you are 100 percent correct to pull me up on that. But it's interesting that in the in the episode. The two people that you meet who have gone back in time and lived back through history are a woman
1: and a non-white man.
3: Who have no problems. I have which no is, problems. It's cool for them that they had no problems. That was neat.
1: But I wanted to mention, because that leads into... I was looking up uh, research in fear, and there's a belief. This comes from psychology today. I couldn't find the original source, but it's a basic belief in psychology that there are five basic fears, which are extinction, which is the fear of death, mutilation... Loss of autonomy, which is fear of being immobilised, paralysed. Separation, which is a fear of abandonment, rejection, loss of connectedness. And ego death, which is a fear of humiliation and shame. I thought it was interesting because Doctor Who always has threatens of death in it. And yet that's never been the scary thing in Doctor Who. Being, being threatened to be killed in Doctor Who is not the stuff that scares us. It's the abandonment and the mutilation like Doctor Who's always had a big body body horror, yeah, you know, theme in it. And becoming also, Cybermen, becoming Daleks,
2: and being mind controlled happens all the time, mm-hmm. which I guess is is kind of like a form of ego death because you you will be humiliated. Like you're you're being made to do things that you don't want to do, that are against what you believe, and and that happens all the time, and
1: that's quite terrifying. The idea that someone could take control of you and and yeah, change your position. And the, and the angels yeah. would say, I think, in separation as well. Mm. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of the idea that you will be cut off from your loved ones, like you're saying. And I think, particularly for a child, that's basically saying you're going to be left alone without mum and dad. And that is a real fear as children that we all know, They're being lost in the supermarket, you know, kind of, I think that's... Or left sort of in the supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you are really bad with kids. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: That's why I didn't have any.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But there is, I think, it's interesting that the fears Doctor Who play with has tried to play with humiliation and shame, but it doesn't quite work that well, I think, for the show, whereas these ones that speak to real childhood fears... I think the show does really well.
5: Yeah, I was thinking, because I, I, I like talking about scary movies and all that sort of stuff. And I, I, for a while, I was always like, ah, Doctor Who is always nearly there, but they just mess it up. Like the episode that I was thinking about uh, was The Impossible Planet, and I rewatched this recently, which is it's, it's in the tenant areas running around flirting with Rose and all that sort of stuff. And they find themselves in the, on this space station thing uh, where they meet the Ood, who, quote, like to work the shaft. <laughs> <laughs> there was a thing on there. <laughs> Yes. They've got a thing for being slaves and they like to work the shaft. Sure. Okay. <laughs> okay, Doctor Who. But they don't, do don't they don't
1: judge their ways, Tigger. <laughs> don't judge them. Well,
5: got their balls I just heard their it hands. and I was just like, What? <laughs> But they did. They set up so many moments where it was nearly scary. Like when they first get onto this station, there's writing that the TARDIS hasn't translated. it's like, but how couldn't it have translated? That must be so old. Oh, my God. And then a door opens. It's like plasticine octopus faces. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> all right, it's them. And then there's another bit where the guy gets taken over by the devil and he gets all the, the black marks on his face and the red eyes. And that's actually kind of scary at some points. But then he just kind of thrashes around in chairs. And it's like, oh, okay, it's not good. And the bit that really let me down was but, um, they, they reference Alien at one point. They go into these the ventilation shafts, and Rose actually says she's like, "Oh, it's the ventilation shaft." I'm like, "Great, they're going to do an Alien thing. This is going to be awesome." But no, it's not.
3: I just thought <laughs> there was, was a Sarah Jane thing, though. She spent almost her entire life crawling through ventilation. shafts. Oh, really? Shafts. Is it a yeah. I
5: just went I, in my head. There was I just a big thing like Blake
3: Seven, early you know the right. the seventies Doctor Who. There's just ventilation shafts and spaceships are
1: huge.
5: Yeah, there right. is a proud tradition of their Although, ventilation shafts. although yeah.
3: sometimes
2: only huge enough for the smallest companion to go through alone <laughs> as only in alone. the Ark in space. Nice. Yeah. So I was
5: kind of like... I was like, oh, there's so many missed opportunities. But then I think of, a, of an episode like Blink, and I, I don't know if I'd let my kids watch that because I think that is too scary. And I think these episodes where it's kind of just about scary but they don't do that terrifying... Like, it's important because... Otherwise you wouldn't have had kids hiding behind the couch because it would be too mm. scary for them to watch. And, you know, most people in here started it from when they were kids. So I think they get that and they've, per- they've gotten it perfect that there is always that hint of it being utterly terrifying but they do draw back and they don't mm. let everybody lose their shit and that is so important because I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't let a kid watch Blink.
1: But it's a safe scary, isn't it? That's the point. It is. It's I a think, good well, safe scary. Which is great. Kids can go, oh, I can watch this and be terrified. It and is. it's yeah. okay, though, because there's mum and there's... And there's you know.
5: so many things, I think, that, are, that, are, that have that scary and it's gone too scary. Like the Batmans I think about a lot. Kids can't watch Batman anymore. It's too scary. But I think the Doctor Who is, yeah, it's this perfect level of really good jelly face Levine sort of like scary it's great but I mean I, again, you know my childhood's a very long time
3: ago now, and I don't always remember what it was like, but as, as an adult, you know a lot of the things the, the monster type stuff i don't find frightening, and I think as a, as a younger viewer, sometimes you're like you know the difference between reality and fantasy, so seeing the devil, seeing sort of woogie face monsters I mean it's kind of an exciting thrill to be frightened of, but you know perfectly well. That that's not going to be something you encounter in your life, which is why things like... The, the the shop dummies and the the uh, the Pertwee story where plastic comes to life and starts suffocating spits plastic over your mouth and suffocates you including to death, including a sofa, you know, th- including a sofa and little plastic flowers. You know these are things you will encounter or will, could probably encounter in your day to day life yeah. that will actually kill you, and that's actually really really frightening. That's that takes you much closer to the fear factor because that feels like it could happen, yeah. and you have to then rely know that the doctor is going to save people, but you're going to watch a lot of People die before he does, so there's that. at like, I just, um, I mentioned Mary Whitehouse before. Has, has she been explained before on this no, show? No, I don't think and she hasn't kind really
1: of shown up before. No,
3: she was she was a decency campaigner in the UK. So she she used to complain all the time that Doctor Who was not suitable for children. Um, so she would complain, you know, in this particular um, terror of the Autons that. Um, a policeman turned out to be a baddie. And it was like she was very angry about that because you mustn't let children not trust policemen or come to that in plastic daffodils or sofas or strange little um, monstrous dolls. But yeah, for me, the, the fear factor in that was that turning the ordinary, something you might encounter outside your living room and outside the television could, if you have a vivid imagination, turn into something dangerous. So you had to kind of stick to the TV and make sure that that danger was dealt with and that the doctor had won and that was not going to harm you anymore. And I, I think that might be one of the things that drove people behind the sofa, that it was more
5: mm.
3: possible or plausible as a, as a threat.
5: I just thought there was one thing as well. It didn't necessarily... It kind of did scare me. It more got to me as well and i blanked out on a name that's so obvious, that sort of, the red-haired girl, Matt Smith's. Amy. Amy. Uh, uh, anyway. Yeah, that episode where she, she gets left behind and she ages in that time. Yeah, for, and, yeah. so she's le- and you meet the old Amy Pond. That episode was scary for me, I suppose, because yeah. that tapped into, oh, my God. Well, it's abandonment, that, isn't it? It's, it's, abandonment, it's the abandonment, the abandonment it's thing. A, so you're right. Thing. It's that different thing. And that, that, for me, that's a scary episode because I think that episode is so sad. It's sh- so sad. The ones
1: where they lose the TARDIS is often more terrifying. Then in yeah. the Frontios, for example, first part of Frontios, they think the TARDIS has been destroyed. This idea that, that the get-out-of-jail-free card might be gone is often one of the, the more terrifying elements in this. I was wondering, though, do you think Mary Whitehouse had a point at any time? That the one thing she complained about was the end of Deadly Assassin, where the Doctor appears to be being drowned. And she pointed out, probably correctly, that it was a thing that children could... Be copying? Do you think, Doctor Who... You mentioned Blink before, Tegan. Do, do all of you think there's a point where it has crossed the line and gotten too scary? Oh.
5: I, I, I think d- Blink <laughs> is safe in a way because, you know, I, like I said, I probably wouldn't let a kid watch it, but at the same time, I don't think they're going to be dressing up as angels and staring each other to death. You know,
2: so, <laughs> I, just, I just want to quickly to interject here. Blink <laughs> is safe for kids watching it because it's fantasy until the last 20 seconds of it, which is a blatant, yeah. Fuck you, kids! Angels are real! Yeah! yeah. Here's some they pictures of them. statues everywhere. And I
3: do think there's this underestimation that children don't understand the difference between what's on television and what's in the world. You know, there's that little frisson of, oh, that I could encounter that while you're watching mm. the show. But when you're out there, you know that the world's the world. And, you know, like I said, some kids have very vivid imaginations and then, God, and I don't know, grow up like me to be nerds and write horror. But, <laughs> but you know, I know the difference. Uh, I think sometimes... It skated very close. But I also, uh, this is probably a bit rich from someone coming from someone who doesn't have children, but I have nieces and nephews and I, I think having a show or an environment where it's safe to be frightened, where you know that whatever happens in the end, the doctor won't drown, or if he does, it, he'll turn into a new doctor. He will come back, he'll survive, he'll beat the bad guy and will go on to save more people. You know, if if you keep your kids in this little place where they never encounter anything that's scary or dangerous and then go out in the world jesus they're going to be shocked <laughs> you know when they get out there and find the world not only is frightening but there's no doctor there um so you know as a writer and as a reader and as, as, a, as a viewer you know you sit there you find all these safe places to experience things that you won't experience necessarily yourself you find a safe way to go well, I'm, I'm afraid, but, OK, if I was in that position, how would I behave? Would I be as brave as the doctor? Would I be able to step in like one of the companions? You read books that give you those opportunities to experience um, things that you may never encounter or at least won't encounter till you're older and then think through, oh, well, if that was me, then I might do X, Y or Z. And it, so it's a safe place to experience fear and then also experience... Um, perhaps courage, how you might face that. So by the time you've got out into the world, you've had all these trial runs of dealing with the vagaries and unfairness that's actually out there in the real world. And I think if you just grow up on um, Teletubbies the whole time, something that's bland and vanilla the whole time that never challenges you, then you've had no um, dress rehearsals for life. And uh, for me, fiction, um, whatever its form, that's one of its great values and the, the the important things we get out of it is so that we learn who we can be before we get out there and have to be that yeah. Yeah. We, we do live in a culture where negative feelings you're discouraged from mm. having them you must feel good and positive about yourself all the time yeah. you mustn't ever feel anxious and where in fact you know anxiety sadness negative feelings are as important uh, to being a whole person as any positive feeling and what we have to relearn sometimes is how to get through it and know that it will end otherwise you just start medicating or drinking or whatever so you don't have to feel the bad feeling there's nothing wrong with feeling the bad feeling until you've worked through it and got out the other end yeah definitely
1: will you please thank norell m harrison Tegan higginbotham Our next show is all about the Colin Baker era and yeah. also wardrobe and costume in Doctor Who. Oh, we've put that under the imaginative theme title of Clothes.
2: <laughs> because we, didn't, we wanted to make sure that you know, it wasn't just about fashion or costume design. It's about all of that sort of sartorial business, isn't it, John? Yes, and where is our show happening? Uh, it's going to be at Agent 284, which is on Smith Street in uh, Collingwood. Uh, well, let's, we'll put all the details online It's going to be on June the 15th Which is a Saturday And we'll be starting uh, in the late afternoon a similar time slot to today mm-hmm. uh, And we're going to have uh, some great guests uh, We can only announce one Because unfortunately they're not all confirmed yet But we will have uh, Tansy
1: Rayner-Roberts Tansy Rayner-Roberts from the Verity Podcast Yes, Who was mentioned in
2: today's episode of Splendid Chaps
1: Exciting isn't it So in preparation for the show If I wanted to learn more about Colin Baker What's the homework list there Petra?
0: Your homework, should you choose to accept it, is the following. For your Crash Course in the Sixth Doctor, we suggest Revelation of the Daleks, Vengeance on Varos, and the Mysterious Planet. For the theme of clothes, we have The Chase, The Talons of Wing Chiang, Robots of Death, Black Orchid, and Gridlock.
1: Now, The Chase is in there because it involves jumpers. (laughs) We have talked about the miraculous properties of
2: Barbara's cardigans before. And we will again. Barbara's knitwear. For our musical number, as you know, we often try to get someone to perform either a song they've written themselves about Doctor Who or perform a cover of a song written about Doctor Who back in the day, as it were. And tonight it's going to be one of the latter. So (laughs) in uh, the late or early 80s, I should say, uh, a little Australian band called Bulla McCanker wrote a song which blatantly used the Doctor Who theme as its basis, but that seemed okay in a way because it was about Doctor Who and it's popularly known as Doctor Who is Gonna Fix It. <laughs> it was a minor hit here in Australia, but it, it really became known to fans, particularly in the UK, when it was re-released uh, in the 20th anniversary year, 1983, uh, by the BBC as a single. So clearly they'd worked out any rights issues by then. <laughs> And we thought, well, we'd love to have someone perform this. It's one of the few Australian songs written about Doctor Who. There are a couple of others, but frankly, this is the best one. And who better to get to perform it than an Australian performer uh, and one who will give it her own special spin uh, in an acoustic ukulele performance. So, ladies and gentlemen, to play Bulla McHanker's Doctor Who is Gonna Fix It, please welcome Georgia Fields.
1: And until next time we meet... Thank you! It's good! Keep warm!
6: sitting in front of the tv set there was nothing else to do along comes this amazing cove they called him doctor who it was half past six on the abc just before the news no ads to interrupt me on this interspatial cruise there was moving metal madness a program to destroy the doctor has them covered to thwart their every ploy Exterminate, exterminate that evil monotone The doctor fights the Daleks unarmed and all alone Doctor... Doctor Who is gonna fix it, Doctor Who will put it right As he moves across the galaxy at twice the speed of light Back into the future, the TARDIS travels time With his beautiful assistant and his trusty mate K-9 A painted blue policeman's booth, but when inside the doors A vast interior complex defies dimensional laws His robot dog is by his side, he packs a powerful punch And he always has the answers when it comes down to the crunch Doctor Who is gonna fix it, Doctor Who will put it right As he moves across the galaxy at twice the speed of light Back into the future The TARDIS travels time With his beautiful assistant And his trusty mate canine. Oh, oh, oh The threats of time and out of space He'll always keep in line He'll put those fuckers in their place Throughout the realms of time The why and where of how and when, the back beyond and through, the what and if and maybe will depend on Doctor Who. In other words, it's really yeah. easy. It's just ooh.
0: the technical wizardry of David Ashton from and Holt Studios. You can find us at slenderchats.com and at Slender Chats on Facebook and on Twitter. I'm Petra Elliott. Until next time, thank you. It's good. Peace.